I once read a news story uh, from the United Kingdom, actually. I've, I've seen it a couple of times. I don't know, maybe I keep hitting the same websites again and again. But the story of a, of a grandfather, of an elderly man, um, somewhere between his late 60s and mid-70s, uh, doted on his grandkids. He was known for loving them well, being gentle and kind. And this is wonderful. There's one downside, though. There was someone who saw this kindly old grandfather and saw his gentleness as weakness. And so this young man decided to rob this grandfather. He said, oh, this will be easy, an easy opportunity for me to make a quick score, a quick dollar. So he broke into the old man's house, but what he didn't realize is that this old man knew a thing or two. He used to be a boxer in the armed forces. And so he gave him the old one, two, three, the jab, cross, hook, and the thief went down with a bruised and battered face, ended up arrested and in jail. You see, he confused the grandfather's gentleness and kindly demeanor with weakness. Sometimes people make the same mistake with Jesus. They make the same kinds of assumptions about Jesus. They confuse his gentleness with weakness, but I've heard it said that gentleness is simply power under control. People picture a genie Jesus who's there to give them whatever they want, a self-help guru Jesus, the man to make you wealthy Jesus, Jesus the role model, so forth and so on. A tame Jesus. But this doesn't square with the Christ that we find in the scriptures. And our text today demonstrates how, more, how much greater Christ is than we could possibly imagine. It's Psalm 110. I'll read it for us now. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Before we jump in, I want to give a little bit of context to this particular psalm. About four points I want us to keep in mind as we try to understand what this word says, both to the people in the original context and to us today. First, this is a royal psalm. What does that mean? Simply this, it's a focus on the house of David and the reality that the house of David is a vehicle for God's blessing and promise keeping. Second, it's arranged into the fifth, the Psalms are, are arranged into five books, and there's lots of debate over what those five books mean, what these groupings are supposed to communicate to us. I think it's likely that this Psalm is included in the fifth book as an encouragement to post-exile Israel. So this is Israelites who the, the kingdom has fallen, both in the north and the south. Exiles have been sent to places like Babylon, the kingship has ended. For all intents and purposes, Israel as a free nation state doesn't exist. They are an oppressed people. So this psalm is 
likely arranged in the place that it is to be an encouragement to the post-exile people. It's also written by King David, which matters quite a bit as we go through the text. And as Bill mentioned earlier in this service, it's referenced a whole lot in the New Testament, again and again and again. So as we consider Psalm 110, I want us to think one big idea, one takeaway that I want to leave you all with today, which is simply this. See Jesus for who he is. See Jesus for who he is. And we're going to see in this text that he's at least three things, more than this, but in three things in this text. First, Jesus is our sovereign king. Second, Jesus is the victorious warrior. And third, Jesus is our great high priest. We'll start with Christ's sovereignty. This is, we'll find this in verses 1 through 3. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your, the dew of your youth will be yours. I read this psalm uh, to my family last night, and uh, one of the things I realized very quickly as I read it is that some of the phrasing sounds awkward to our ears. It's, it's kind of a difficult thing to understand, and, and we see it in the first sentence, right? The Lord says to my Lord. There's something we're losing in kind of that Hebrew to English translation, right? But it matters, so I want to focus in on the grammar just, just a little bit. David, King David is writing this, so that's, that's important to remember. And the first Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh. It's the proper name of God. Yahweh says, to my Lord. And the second Lord there, that's a word that's used for a human ruler, a king, if you will. And so the Lord says to my Lord, it's basically said, God said to my king. But David's saying this, so who would be the king of David, if he's the king of Israel? Who would David refer to as my Lord? You see, if he's the king of Israel, in the, in the height of its power, there's, there, he, it, would, it would stand to reason that David has no peer. So who is he calling his Lord? And this is a human, what human ruler could be the ruler of David? Well, I won't beat around the bush. I won't make you guess. The answer is Jesus. But we want to see that from the passage itself. You see, David is writing about the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's going to fulfill all the promises of God. He's looking forward to God answering all of his promises in the Messiah. That's who he's talking about. So God says to this Messiah, this anointed one, to this ruler who will be even higher than David, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Again, some maybe perhaps some awkward phrasing for our modern ears, but first, the right hand is a place of honor. Whoever this ruler is going to be, he's going to sit at the Lord's right hand. This is the highest of highs. This is the most privileged position a person can have at the right hand of God. Until I make your enemies your footstool. That's perhaps a little easier to understand. All of God's enemies are going to be put under the feet of this Messiah, of Jesus Christ. Someday, all your enemies will be under your feet. And the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, is seated because that references a completed work. His ministry 
on earth. There's only one person, only one human who can occupy so lofty a position, the right hand of God, and it's, it's Christ. Hebrews 10, 12-13 says, But when Christ had, all, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. See, the New Testament is not confused about who this psalm is about. Again and again, they say it's about Christ, who is the Messiah. Christ is the only one with this honor, with this authority of being at God's right hand. Christ serves his earthly ministry. He lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and was raised again, completing his earthly mission, and now sits because the work is done at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. He's waiting for the end of all things. And in the meantime, petitions the Lord on our behalf, as it says in Romans 8, 34. So this is a lofty position. In this first sentence, we see that Christ is exalted, honored. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No earthly ruler has one iota of this kind of privilege or authority. Revelation 1, 4 through 5 puts it this way, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Christ's authority is supreme. There's no human authority that comes close. And so this is why King David refers to him as his ruler. Because David's authority is completely and totally under Christ's. He knows there's one greater than him coming who will fulfill the promises of God. And this is the scepter from Judah that we heard about in Genesis 49 that we read at the beginning of this service. This scepter, this symbol of kingly authority, a wand a king holds in his hand to declare things as the authority in the land, But this isn't just an earthly scepter. This is one that lasts forever. And Christ's authority is not only greater than David's, but greater than the angels or any cosmic being of power. You see, Hebrews draws on this same psalm to make the point that Christ is far greater than angels. Hebrews 1.13 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, again, this same psalm is referenced to talk about Christ, to demonstrate his superiority here against angels. Now, angels are, powers of, are beings of incredible cosmic power. They're so, in, they're so amazing, they're so mind-blowing, that John sees one and immediately falls on his feet trying to worship him. The angel says, you must not do that. If we were to see an angel, we would quake in our shoes. Their power is unimaginable. And yet, they don't hold a candle to Christ. So not only is Christ's authority, his kingship, greater than any earthly kingship, but it's also greater than any spiritual authority in the heavenly places. So Hebrews draws on this same psalm to declare the authority and the kingship of Christ. This text also tells us 
that the Messiah's people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Meaning simply that God's people will delight to submit to Christ's rule. In part now, we see this in the churches, in the lives of Christians. They recognize Christ for who he is and rightly worship him. Submitting to his rule and reign, trying to conform their lives into the image of Christ. Accepting that they don't know best, but rather Christ does. But we'll see it perfectly at the end of all things. On the last day when Christ's people celebrate with him and rule and reign with him for all eternity. So these first four verses are a reflection on the reality of the Messiah's kingship. But a, a question came to my mind as I was, I was preparing this text. Well, okay, so, so, so what? Jesus is king. Even Kanye wrote a song called that. What is, you know, okay, this is a fact. What do we do with that? This royal language, this kingship language, is simply a means of communicating Christ's authority to us, his rule to us. Christ is not simply an earthly ruler, but he's the absolute sovereign over the entire universe. What, is that, what are the implications of that? Things like stars imploding or black holes being formed, the laws that govern our physical universe operate as they do because of Christ's word. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Likewise, Colossians 1.15-17 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's famously been said that when the Roman soldier struck Christ on the way to his crucifixion, Christ was in charge of the hand that hit him, the oxygen the man breathed, and everything in the entire universe. And yet he allows it to happen under his authority so that he can redeem his people. His power is total and complete. If Christ so desired to not hold all things together, the universe would fall apart. We exist because Christ wills it to be so. This is a level of kingship and authority that's difficult to comprehend. So all of this language, all of this discussion of Christ being a king, of him gathering a people who will joyfully submit to his authority and his enemies being ruled over by him, it's, it's supposed to point us to his greatness, to his authority, to his command, to his kingship. And the application of that reality is simple. We have to see Jesus for who he is. We have to worship him as the king of the universe. We have to submit to his authority. There's no fighting a power like this. There's no resisting a will like his. Either we joyfully submit and offer ourselves freely or we'll be put under Christ's feet on judgment day. We don't get to be neutral with Jesus. We either pursue him as part of his covenant people or we reject him to be trampled under his feet. 
So worship Christ. See him for who he is, the king. It's our first point. Jesus is our sovereign king, but he's also the victorious warrior. Verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A quick note before we jump into the idea of Jesus as the victorious warrior. There's, there's, yeah, we want to pay close attention to the word order here. You see, at the beginning, it says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings. Now, the Lord reference here is also a term that's reserved for divinity. But he's referring to the king, my ruler, who's at your right hand, because he says the Lord is at your right hand. It's subtle, but what he's saying, what this, what this language is telling us, is that the Messiah is both an earthly king and ruler and also divine. There's a reason why the New Testament authors continue to refer to this psalm as proof that Christ is the anointed one because it shows us that Christ is both human ruler and divine Lord. Christ's authority as king of all existence will be used on judgment day to defeat all his enemies. All of that power, all of that authority that we talked about in the first point is going to bring perfect justice to the entire earth. And there's no power that can stand against Christ the warrior. Look at the language we see in this text. We're going to shatter kings, execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, shattering chiefs. This is intense, powerful, martial language. And that last line seems odd. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Okay, well, why, why is Christ going to stop and get a drink of water? What, like, what, on his, what, is the, what is this? How does this fit with the idea of shattering your enemies? Well, there's a number of people in the military here, but from what I understand, when there's a route going on and the enemy's fleeing before you, you have time to stop and get some water on your way and then continue the route. You see, the image here is of a warrior who's pursuing his enemies that's been put to flight. Their morale has broken. They can't stand before the victorious warrior, and so they run. And the warrior has, at his leisure, the ability to pursue and continue the victory. But it's so complete that he can even stop for a drink of water before he continues in pursuit. It's the image of a total and complete victory. Christ will conquer all. What do we see as human power? Large armies, massive wealth, nuclear weapons, artificial intelligence that makes lightning quick decisions, all shatter like glass before a sledgehammer in front of Christ's power. All of these human inventions are like mist or fog trying to stop a semi-truck from moving. It does nothing. Christ is the victorious warrior. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-8 tells us that when the Antichrist comes, 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You see, it's a, not a fair fight. It's not like the devil and the Antichrist fight Jesus to any sort of competitive battle. No, Jesus appears and they're undone. He simply exhales and it's over. Christ will conquer all. Everything will be put under his feet. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 gives us a picture of this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. This is an image of Christ. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ will conquer, but he doesn't conquer alone. He brings his people with him. As Romans tells us, we're more than conquerors than Christ. We're united to him. We join him in his victory. And that should encourage us. As we think about the end of all things, Jesus wins. He is the warrior who defeats the enemy. And that should encourage us to hold on. For in the midst of difficulty, if circumstances of our life are hard, if we feel like we can't bear it or we can't go on a step more, know the end is written. Jesus wins. Continue on. Hold on. Remember, this is written to encourage Israelites who are in exile. From their perspective, everything has been undone. The temple has been destroyed. They're not in their homeland. This doesn't look hopeful. There's, there's literally nothing they can do. They've been undone. This psalm is here to encourage them. Don't worry. No matter how things look around you, God will keep his promises. The Messiah, the anointed one, will be the victorious warrior. But it's not just earthly human enemies that Jesus defeats. It's not just the devil and his works that Jesus defeats. Christ also defeats death. The Bible tells us that the last enemy to be defeated will be death. In Revelation, we see that death is thrown into Hades, into the lake of fire. From our perspective, it's hard to see that death feels so final, it seems like the end. And so if death is, feels like it's closing in, there's illness around you, if you've lost loved ones, that can feel so final, but in Christ, it's not. Because he defeats death. He's the victorious warrior over death. And our hope in life or death is in Christ. We see he's our sovereign king. We see here that he's the victorious warrior. And finally, from this text, we'll see that Jesus is our great high priest. This is coming from verse 4. 
which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. One verse. There's a lot packed into it. In Old Testament Israel, the idea of having an office, a job, a function, if you will, there's, there's quite a few, but the role of priest and the role of king are divided. They're two different offices. You can't occupy both. You can't both be priest and king. But what we see here in this text is that the, the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be both priest and king. He will fulfill both roles, both offices, and more. He's not only king, he's not only a victorious warrior, but he's also a priest. Christ is going to unite these two offices perfectly. What does a priest do? A priest mediates between God and man. He takes, he makes atonement for, he works to overcome the divide between God and man, created by sin. Imperfectly in Old Testament Israel, but perfectly in Christ. Hebrews gives us an explanation of why. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's the reality of who Christ is that makes him the perfect high priest. No one else could have achieved our salvation. Christ brings his authority, his power as a victorious warrior, and his very self to rescue us. This is a sacrifice once and forever for all times. He gave all of that on the cross. He gave his blood, his very life to rescue us. But because of his perfect life, because of his divine nature, all of the things we've talked about and more, this sacrifice has the power to redeem anyone from their sins. That's the power of the cross. This one act, his death on a cross, can redeem anyone throughout all time from their sins. Anyone can call upon the Lord for rescue without precondition. There is no crime, there is no transgression, there is no family history, there is no background, there is no limitation that can dampen the saving power of the cross. Why is that? Because of who Jesus is. Because of that great, mighty authority we talked about in section one, that is why his sacrifice is so powerful. You can't limit him. So if you're wondering, can Christ save me? The answer is yes, because he's king because he's the perfect high priest because he's God all you need to do is turn from your sins and put your trust in him to save you the reference to Melchizedek reinforces the greater priesthood of Christ now there's probably one to two people in this room who saw Melchizedek and got really excited and the rest of you are probably like who's that guy I have no idea who this person is which is fair because I didn't know who he was until I had a friend who was obsessed with Melchizedek, and now I can't get his voice out of his head. Brian Lewis, wherever you are, if you're hearing this, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes from Genesis 14, 17 through 20. I'm not going to read it, but I'll try to summarize. So Abraham defeats a whole bunch of kings. 
And Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, and also a priest, interesting enough, comes out to meet Abraham and he brings bread and wine. What's that pointing to? Uh, He's a priest of God Most High, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth. He tithes his money to Melchizedek. And it's an odd section in Genesis. It's almost like, well, why is this here? And it's to point us to something. It's to point us to Jesus. It's to point us to this perfect union of king and priest that's coming. Hebrews 7 breaks it down for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28, I'll read this part. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as a high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Okay, so we're seeing in Hebrews that Christ is the greater priest. And Melchizedek, in, in the order of Melchizedek, Why does the author of Hebrews tie in Melchizedek to Christ's greater priesthood? It's to to outline for us that this priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And it points us to the perfection of Christ's priesthood. Okay, why is Mel's priesthood greater than the Levitical priesthood? Well, I'm glad you've asked. I have at least six reasons. First, Melchizedek comes before chronologically. Abraham hasn't become the father of Israel yet. The Jacob, out of Egypt, all that stuff, Levitical priesthood hasn't been implemented. So Melchizedek is first. Second, Abraham ties to Melchizedek. He gives a tenth of his money to Melchizedek. And Hebrews mentions that as the lesser blessing the greater. This is an example of how Abraham sees himself as, as bless, blessing the greater Melchizedek. King of Salem. It can also be translated as the king of peace. It's also likely that Salem was Jerusalem. It's, again, pointing us to Jesus. It's a prefiguring of him. Melchizedek is also king and priest. He's holding two offices. Why is he able to do that when it's not allowed in Israel? Because this is before Israel. This is before God has made the Mosaic Covenant with his people. So he holds both offices. Finally, and interestingly, to me, something I did not realize until this week. Melchizedek's kingship and his priesthood is not limited or restricted to bodily descent. He's not a Jew. He's not a member of Israel. He's outside of that group. And yet he's still, he's still priest and king. It's forerunning, it's pointing to, it's giving us the idea that God is going to bless all nations through his perfect priest and king, Jesus. This covenant is not restricted just to Israel, but it's for the whole world. So you get to something like Melchizedek and you realize that everything in Scripture is there for a reason, even if it seems odd to us on first read. See, Jesus was always the plan. Melchizedek brings bread and wine to Abraham. This is pointing to the Lord's Supper. 
This is pointing to Christ giving his own body and his own blood for the salvation of his people. Why does it matter that Christ is a greater priest? Why do we need something greater than the Levitical priesthood? For a lot of reasons. But the one that I keep coming back to is Christ's sacrifice is so great that we are not able to outsin his grace. Because Christ's grace is bound up in him, it's bound up in who he is as perfectly, perfectly God and perfectly man. The object of our faith is without flaw, and his power is boundless. That's what equips him and makes him able to redeem any regardless of what they've done. And so it would be foolish or arrogant of us to think that we are the one person who sinned beyond the saving hand of Jesus. I've heard many a person say to me, Ben, you don't know what I've done. No God could ever love me. And it sounds something like humility, but it's actually pride. You're saying that Christ's blood isn't enough to cover you. But what we see in this text is that his blood is more than able to cover your sins and the sins of the whole world. So if you doubt that Christ can save you, remember that he is the perfect high priest. We have to see Jesus for who he is. We have to see Jesus as our sovereign king. We have to see him as the victorious warrior. We have to see him as our great high priest. Jesus is high and lifted up. One thing I was struck by as I prepared this week is I often in my preaching think about Christ being gentle and lowly and near to sinners, and all that is true. Christ is a friend to sinners. And yet, at the same time, he's incredibly more than I could ever imagine. That should fill me with awe. It should fill me with reverence. The fact that his greatness was willing to condescend to come down to earth in order to save us doesn't diminish his friendship with us. It doesn't lessen his love for us. It actually shows us how incredibly great his love is, that somebody that high and lifted up, whom angels cannot compare to, would love us enough to come near. The fact that this greatness would be willing to do so shouldn't simply cause us to fear and run away, but rather recognize the depths of his love for us. Christ's immensity, his godhood, his divinity, his kingship, his authority, his victory shows us the infinite depths of his love. It's like the greatness of all the oceans taking notice of a grain of sand. That's the greatness of the Lord noticing us. This is the greatness of Jesus. So let us both see him for the great king and authority that he is, undoing anything we can imagine, being the sovereign power that holds the universe together and yet still loves us. Let's see Jesus for who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending us a Savior who is so great and so mighty, who will bring final victory at the end of all things where all of his enemies will be brought under his feet. We pray that in that moment we would join the saints in worship of him and rejoice in his coming.
We pray, too, that we would know how great and awesome is our Messiah, is Jesus, and at the same time recognize that he loves us enough to come near. Help us carry that message to those around us, that there is a king over everything, and death cannot hold him, nor can death defeat him, but he can make life where there is no life. Help us carry that message of life to those in our world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.